The second epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a very well-meaning man who came up to G. Campbell Morgan many, many years ago, and he always had something that he needed to tell the preacher, what he should teach and what he should preach. And he said to him, what the preacher ought to do is catch the spirit of the age in which he's living. And Morgan threw up his hands and he said, God forgive him if he does. The preacher's job is to correct the spirit of the age. Paul was that kind of a preacher. The Corinthian letters follow Romans in the New Testament, but in point of fact were written before the book of Romans. Paul first came in contact with the Corinthians on his second missionary journey in about A.D. 50. And the account is recorded in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 18. And if you want, you can just turn to Acts chapter 18. And in Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, it says, After these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. This was a city in Greece which was known for idolatry and evil conduct. As a matter of fact, Corinth in the ancient world had sort of a California reputation in our culture and society. As a matter of fact, in that culture, when they would use to describe a cuss word, so to speak, they would speak of to Corinthianize. We have a word in our own culture. We call it Californicate. It was the same kind of word that was used in the ancient world to describe Corinth. It says, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila born in Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. He kicked all of the Jews and the Christians and the Romans couldn't differentiate between the two and came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation, they were tent makers. So Paul was about 50 years old. When he first came to Corinth, he remained in Corinth about 18 months. He lived with Aquila and Priscilla. He worked part time as a tent maker to support himself in his ministry. Now, Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote first Corinthians, where he ministered for three years. And Paul sent the first Corinthian letter by way of Timothy According to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, but the problems in the church after he delivered the letter didn't seem to get better. Things went from bad to worse. 
And some have suggested that Timothy lacked the kind of firm resolve that Paul demonstrated. But Paul then sent Titus to Corinth to encourage the believers to obey the Lord and to heed uh, Paul's instructions. We learn that from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses uh, 13 through 15. And then in Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 42, we read that Paul was driven out of the port city of Ephesus. He was forced to leave. A riot broke out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 3 through 7, Paul had promised to take a visit and visit the believers in Corinth. But circumstances were such that Paul's journey was postponed. The original plan was to meet Titus in Troas. Now, Troas is a city in what's modern Turkey. So if you can imagine, there's Greece. You can see Corinth and the Corinthian Canal. You can see where it says Macedonia, Bulgaria, Turkey, and that that area just now south of there. That would have been Troas. He makes his way through the Hellespont, and uh, he's supposed to meet Titus there. But once again, his plans don't come to fruition. And so when you read Second Corinthians and you read the first two chapters of the book, you begin to feel the burden and the heartache of the Apostle Paul, who expresses both physical and emotional hardship and pain. In Troas, Paul preached before making his way to Macedonia. And then he and Titus finally meet, probably... In the town called Philippi, if you see where it says Athens and where it says Aegean Sea and you hang, depending on where you're seating, a left. If you see where it says the Greece and you go south into the coastline, that's going to be about where Philippi was located. And so he goes there to prepare for a third visit. He takes Titus along with two companions and delivers yet another letter to the church that according to Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse six. And if you just turn to Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse six, you'll read. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. And then again in verse 16, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. What I'm going to suggest to you is that in between 1 Corinthians and the letter that you and I call 2 Corinthians, Paul had written another note. But that note has been lost. So the second Corinthians that we have in our Bible is really third Corinthians. But second Corinthians, the original letter is lost in antiquity and we have no idea what it contained. I'm going to suggest to you that second Corinthians was probably written about 56 or 57 A.D., depending on how soon after. First Corinthians, it was written, which was about 55 A.D. So there's a series of letters that are written rather quickly to the church at Corinth. So why does he write this letter? 
Well, Paul wanted to compliment and commend the church for exercising church discipline. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a guy in the church at Corinth who had taken up with his own stepmother and he was wickedly involved in a relationship. And so Paul said, don't do Matthew 18. Do not take witnesses. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Kick him out of the church right now. And that's exactly what they did. They kicked him out of the church. And now he wants to encourage the Corinthians because they were really good at kicking people out of the church, but they were really bad about letting them back into the church. So now he's going to encourage them to forgive the offender and restore him and receive him back into fellowship in Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Also, he wanted to explain why his plans had changed and why he was unable to visit them like he first planned. And he also wanted to answer those in the church who questioned his apostolic calling, his ministry and authority. Paul wanted to answer those who accused Paul of being a fraud and a charlatan and some sort of religious person who didn't really know what he was talking about. Who accused Paul of wrong ministry motives in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Paul also wanted to encourage the church to share from their abundance with those who were suffering in Jerusalem in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And so what he was going to do was remind them that there's a great big world out there. And what was happening simply in their church wasn't indicative of what was happening everywhere in the world. And the letter is personal and it is emotional and it is intense. And the contrasts in this letter are remarkable. We're going to look at themes like glory and humility and life and death and sorrow and consolation and sternness and tenderness. In 1 Corinthians, Paul took the roof off the church and he invited you to look inside the wickedness of the church. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to take the roof off of his heart. And he's going to invite you to look into his heart. As a matter of fact, you're going to see his love, his concern, his work of the ministry. In this book, you will have the best indication of what kind of a man Paul really, really was. And so, one Bible teacher writes, in the first letter, Paul is the instructor, answering questions, setting matters right. In the second letter, he's the loving pastor, the minister of Christ, pouring out his life so that his spiritual children might be perfected in the faith. No letter in the New Testament reveals the true character of the Christian ministry as does this one. No letter says so much about Christians 
giving and Christians suffering and Christians experiencing spiritual triumph. And I think this is why I wanted to share it with you. Because we need to learn the lessons about giving and suffering and spiritual triumph. You know, the letter can be broadly divided simply. So easy that anyone can remember. If you can remember past and present and future, you have an understanding of the outline of the book of Corinthians. In chapters 1 through 7, Paul will speak of the past misunderstandings and then give explanations. In chapters 8 and 9, there's this practical present discourse of what to do in the here and the now. And Paul's attention will then turn to the future concerning his upcoming visit to deal with the anxieties the pain and the pressure that people were experiencing, and then also to vindicate his ministry. In the first chapter, Paul reveals his heart and fears and failings. And that might shock you in and of itself, that a pastor would be so honest to talk about what's going on in his heart, what's going on in his fears, what's going on in his failings. And he's going to talk about a difficult subject, one that we're all familiar with, one that we all come in contact with. It's that problem of suffering. And there's probably very few questions that get asked less than the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. It's a constant source of Of frustration and speculation. Why do the righteous suffer? The question, by the way, of suffering is veiled in the first five books of Moses. Then it's addressed head on in the book of Job. And then if you take every single New Testament book, there's going to be something to deal with suffering. And so in the chapter, Paul will recount his personal experiences, and then he'll give three reasons why God permits his people to suffer. But those three reasons aren't the only reasons. They're just the first three reasons. He talks about that sometimes we suffer so that we might comfort one another, and sometimes we suffer so that we'll learn to have confidence in God alone, and sometimes we suffer... So that we'll understand and claim the promises of God. And so in the introduction, Paul will stress that God is the source for all the concerns of his people. And so in verses 1 and 2, it's all about the source. Look again in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by The will of God. When Paul uses that term apostle, he means messenger, ambassador, witness, teacher, missionary, minister. All of those ideas are contained in that one word. It's the word apostolos. It literally means One who is sent. 
And this is his claim. His claim is that he's been sent by God and that he's been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul boldly states that he's been called by God in order to serve God and that he's really been appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why this becomes so important is because he's not some self-styled or self-described minister. He doesn't get his credentials out of some sort of man-made crackerjack Box. He doesn't send off for a mail order seminary degree. As a matter of fact, God is the source of his call and the source of his appointment. And what Paul does in his life, and this becomes really, really important because it's going to address the issues that are already the complaints and the criticisms that are being made against him. Who made you an apostle? What gives you the right to say these things? And he says that Jesus made him an apostle and that Jesus sent him. Clearly, those there were those in Corinth who believed that Paul was a fraud and that he was a charlatan. And this is a big problem, not for Paul so much. The big problem, of course, is are there frauds and are there charlatans in the ministry? Are there people who pretend to be men and women of God, who pretend to love you and who pretend to care about you and who pretend to preach the Bible? But what they are literally looking for is what they can get out of you. I think that the answer is yes. Sadly, tragically, the reality is there are a lot of people who take advantage of other people In the name of God and in the name of Jesus and in the name of ministry. And you probably know some of these people. You've probably watched them on TV. You may have even heard them on the radio. They're everywhere. Some question Paul's call. And they denied his apostolic office. But let me give you a couple of reasons why I think that we can absolutely, positively trust Paul's calling. Who called Paul? Jesus. Do you remember the story on the road to uh, Damascus in the book of Acts where he is criticizing, imprisoning, torturing Christians, and you'll remember he doesn't have an axe to grind. What he thinks of Christians is that they're all a bunch of weirdos, that it's a flaky cult, and that God has called him to stamp out that cult. And then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He is struck down and blinded, and a guy named Ananias prays for him, lays hands on him. He recovers his sight. We as believers don't serve the Lord simply by choice. When Paul says that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, he wants everyone to understand that the ministry is not a profession to choose, but rather a calling that chooses you. I didn't want to be a pastor. I'll be honest with you. I didn't want to be a Bible teacher. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to make a boatload of money. But every time I tried to do something other than teach and preach the Bible, I was miserable. 
You see, when you're called to preach and to teach, you're called based on a different kind of an unction, and that is the reality that you begin to understand the wickedness of sin and the glorious reality of grace and mercy and you want it to be a part of everyone's life you'll remember in john chapter 15 verse 16 jesus said you have not chosen me but i chose you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever you will ask the father in my name that he may give it to you and the reality is you didn't choose jesus jesus chose you The big question you need to ask is why? Why would Jesus choose somebody like you? Well, I won't speak for you. I'll speak for me. Why would God choose someone so wicked, so dark, so evil like me? I've told you all that in high school I was voted most likely to go to hell. And for good reason, because I had every, I was the kind of person that your parents warned you about that you shouldn't hang out with. In Galatians chapter one, verse one, Paul said, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead. He's not a self-styled, self-appointed pastor. Or apostle. Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, he'll say, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When Paul characterizes himself as an ambassador, again, he is calling to mind that particular ministry that has been entrusted to him. It is as if God sent him. To these people with this message of hope and make no mistake about it. When God sends you with the message of hope, you're being sent by Jesus. Satan doesn't send you to your husband or your wife, your brother or your sister, your neighbor or your friend to say, guess what? There's a God who loves you. There's a gospel that if you believe it and embrace it, you can experience grace and hope and mercy and love and redemption and reconciliation to the father. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The implication being that the vast majority of people living in the world are estranged from God. So Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And see, this is important, too. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, not of the church. A denomination didn't send him. A particular theological persuasion didn't send him. He proclaims the message that Jesus has entrusted to him. The true apostle, by the way, will reveal the true Jesus and the true gospel. And that becomes one of the real criteria in which you can use to determine whether someone's messing with you or if they have a legitimate gospel. The story of Paul's conversion, like I said, is found in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 16. John Climacus wrote, Obedience is the burial of the will. 
and the resurrection of humility. So when Paul says an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. The implication is it's not by the will of Paul or either of Peter, James and John or all of the people that he hung out with. It's very important that you begin to understand something. The will of God became the will of Paul. Haven't you ever asked the question, I wonder what God's will is? I wonder what God's will is for my life. I wonder what God's will is for my present. I wonder what God's will is for my future. And by the way, even a superficial reading of the New Testament, you'll discover it's God's will that everyone repent and come to Christ. That's pretty easy. So you don't have to debate that. You don't have to debate whether or not sinners should be saved. You don't have to debate whether or not it's God's will for you to love him and to serve him. You don't have to debate whether or not it's God's will for you to trust him or to turn from sin and to turn to the Savior. Frederick Faber wrote, there are no disappointments to those whose wills are buried in the will of God. And by the way, if you want to know the will of God, then here's what I'm going to suggest to you, that you submerge your will. To the will of God. Donald Gray Barnhouse told his congregation. I can say from experience that 95% of knowing the will of God consists in being prepared to do it. Before you know what it is. When people come to me and they ask me this question. I want to know God's will. I'll immediately say to them, are you prepared to do it? Are you prepared to do God's will? I want to know God's will. Do you think it's God's will for you to be drug free? Do you think it's God's will for you to be faithful and true to him and to your spouse? Do you think it's God's will for you to act in purity and decency? Do you think it's God's will for you to be involved in a relationship that isn't God honoring and God pleasing? But I want to continue this. I want to know what God's will is. It's God's will that you not be unequally yoked. It's God's will that you be pure in mind and in heart. Martin Luther wrote, the will is a beast of burden. If God mounts it, it wishes and goes as God wills. If Satan mounts it, it wishes and goes as Satan wills. Nor can it choose its rider. The riders contend for its possession. Do you understand what Luther is basically saying? Your will is going to be directed either from above or from below. Are you interested in God's will? Then 2 Corinthians is probably a book that you're going to want to learn about. Do you want to know how to navigate life's tough decisions and then walk through painful circumstances? Then guess what? This Bible study is probably for you. Do you want to know how to deal with pain and suffering? Then this is the book for you. If you want to know how to deal with bitter accusations and failure, then this is the book that's for you. You know, we can pray to know God's will, and we should. 
But let me give you a hint of how you can best know God's will. As you pray, allow the Lord to speak to you. As you read your Bible, allow its promises to speak to you. As you think about whatever circumstance you have to discern, try to determine whether or not your own conscience is either accusing you or excusing you. You see, the truth is you can know God's will and you can walk in God's will and you can experience the power of God and the grace and the mercy of God. And you have a great example. It's the person of Jesus Christ. I know we say it almost in a cliche fashion. What would Jesus do? Well, the reality is what Jesus would do is whatever honors his father. And then ultimately he's going to die for sin. God wants you to honor him, but. Are any of you called to die for others' sins? No. Only Jesus can do that. If you want to know God's will, then you need to become familiar with God's word. And if you want to walk in God's ways, then you need to learn to imitate Jesus. And by the way, if you want to know the will of God, then it's probably a good idea for you to stay connected with healthy Fellowship with the body of Christ. But make no mistake about it. You'll never do God's will. Unless you're willing to accept it. And walk in it. And submit to it. And since God is trustworthy, we can trust him with our deepest needs. But what about people who are cruel? What about people who are evil? What about when terrible things happen? This last week has been a painful week. With the murders of children in Connecticut, it's awakened deep wounds. This last Saturday, I flew back to to Tucson, and we've been praying. I, I had... I encouraged our congregation to to uh, pray for Frank Pastore and his family. And he went to be with the Lord about three days ago. He, from November 24th until just about three days ago, he was in a, in a coma at USC Medical Center. Last Saturday, I flew to Tucson to help out a pastor friend of mine, Robert Frua, who's been who's on our board and has frequently spoken here. And his wife gloriously, wonderfully went to be with Jesus as my plane was landing. She was dying in his arms. I drove from the airport to their home and met with him and his family and with Lisa's mother and sister and children. There is pain and grief and loss. Some of you have experienced it, whether it's with your health or with someone that you love or economics. There's things going on in your life and there's an emptiness and a void and a darkness inside of you. And, And some people think, well, what about that? What about what? What? What what do we do when terrible things happen? Do you remember the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50? You'll remember how he was ridiculed, isolated, rejected by his brothers. He found himself in a pit. He was sold into slavery. He winds up in Potiphar's 
household. He's falsely accused. He winds up in jail. His life is like one miserable episode after the other. But God is linking all of these things together because he's going to use him as the instrument of redemption and reconciliation and preservation for his family. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish the saving of many lives. And sometimes we think that pain and grief And sorrow are meant to discipline us or punish us when God is in fact molding us and shaping us and preparing us to be useful. You see, when trouble threatens us, we can turn our attention and our affection to the Lord and we can praise God ahead of time for his solution because God can turn a terrible threat into a great blessing. I know for some of you, you're skeptical. You may not believe me. But do you remember the prayer of King Jehoshaphat? In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, he is facing an enormous army that is certainly going to kill him, or at least that's the way it looks. And in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, he prays, We have not power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And if you are in a situation where you don't know what to do, your heart is heavy, Your conscience is troubled. And you don't know what to do because it just seems so overwhelming. The pain, the grief, the sorrow, the loss. You can fix your eyes on the Lord. He is the source of our salvation. He's the source of our calling. He's the source of our brotherhood. Look what it says. And Timothy, our brother, God is the source of our mutual ministry and brotherhood. Paul calls Timothy our brother. He means that not our brother from another mother. He's talking about a brotherhood in Christ. We're related to each other by virtue of Jesus And the birth of the Holy Spirit. I know for some people it's really awkward when you become a Christian. And people go, hey brother, I'm not your brother. Why are you calling me your brother? Hey sister, what are you talking about? I'm an only child and trust me, I like it that way. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. No, we are related to each other by virtue of Jesus and by virtue of the new birth. Timothy came to Jesus at an early age and Paul sensed God's calling on on the young man and encouraged him. And Timothy served with Paul in the ministry. At this writing, Timothy was with Paul in Macedonia, probably in Philippi. 
And so they're together. And Paul had said that Timothy was on a missionary tour, that he was making his way to Corinth from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, but also that he might not be able to extend the mission as far as Corinth. And you'll remember all of the crazy things that were happening. He wants to go in a particular direction. And circumstances are such that he doesn't always get to do what he wants to do. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Hey, I want to do this and I want to do that. And Even for Paul the Apostle, he didn't get to do everything he wanted to do. Paul was an apostle. But he includes his co-workers. Because the messenger of God is not above the other servants. But he has brothers and co-laborers. And you'll note that they all serve by the will of God. And that's what we should be able to do for one another. We should remind one another. You live by the will of God. You love by the will of God. You serve by the will of God. You're able to impart encouragement and comfort and hope by the will of God. So Paul doesn't elevate himself above the others. But reminds all of us that we all serve by the will of God and then the source of our brotherhood. But but God is also the source of the church and the saints to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in all Achaia. Achaia is that peninsula, the landmass that separated the Corinthian Gulf that was north of Crete. James, do we have the map again? If you look at where it says Peloponnese and you see where it says the Corinthian Canal and you see that little landmass that's just south of, of Greece. So where, where it says Corinth and Canal, that little landmass is Achaia. It was north of Crete. You can see the island just south of there. So Paul wants to address the whole region in case opposition to his ministry had spread to the other parts of the ministry. So he says to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints. And by the way, saints in the Bible isn't an extraordinary person who does extraordinary deeds, who is then canonized by the church. A saint is anyone who has come into a right relationship with God in Christ. As a matter of fact, again, there's two kinds of people in the world. No, not Italian people and people who wish they were. There are saints and there are ain'ts. And you either ain't or you're a saint. And the saint, of course, means the presence of a great big S, which by that we mean the Holy Spirit. A saint is a person who's been born again. A saint is a person who's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. A saint is a person who has come into a right relationship with God in Christ. If you really want to have some fun with people, just start calling yourself Saint Gino. I sort of dropped it because people thought it was presumptuous. But it's really true. Of all people who have come into a right relationship with God. So once again, God is the source of the composition and the organization of the church of the church to the church of God, which is at Corinth. The composition and the organization of the church is made up of people 
who have been born again by the Holy Spirit. Usually membership in a church, they have some sort of criteria. People often will come up to me and they'll ask me, how do I become a member of the church? I say, do you go here? Yes. Do you give here? Yes. Do you serve here? Yes. You're a member. If you go here, give here, and serve here, you're a member. If you go here, but you don't give here and serve here, well, you're just a looky-loo. If you go here and give here, but you don't serve here, thank you. But we're looking for people who go here and give here and serve. Paul knew that all congregations would benefit from his words of of encouragement. And that's why with such complete authority, he says what he says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, he knows that what is about to follow is going to be a source of, of nourishment and encouragement and maturation for each and every person who will take the time to carefully consider what he has to say. So God's the source of our brotherhood and he's the source of the church and he's the source for mutual ministry, but also he's the source of grace and peace. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll note that the grace that he talks about and the peace that he's talking about has its source in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is that very familiar word, charis. It means favor and blessing of God. Now, now again, this becomes important because remember Paul is an ambassador and a minister of Jesus. And so, number one, he serves the Lord. He serves the message of the Lord. And then he serves what the Lord imparts. Grace and peace. Grace is the favor and blessings of God, the undeserved and unmerited favor and blessings of God, the depth and the richness of the heart and the mind of God, the kindness and love that dwells in the very nature of God. Hence, we understand that God is love. We remember that grace means kindness and love freely given to those who have acted against him. Now, this is important. Who can be a recipient of God's grace? Paul acted against him. It's favor of God towards people who are without strength, it says in Romans 5, 6. Ungodly in Romans 5, 6. Sinners in Romans 5, 8. Enemies in Romans 5, 10. Who can get this grace? If you're thinking you're the person who deserves it least, then you're a candidate. I don't have any strength. I'm ungodly. I'm a sinner. I'm an enemy. You qualify. You're you're you qualify. 
when Paul says grace and peace, the word grace, no other word captures the depth and the richness of the heart and the mind of God. My friend Lee Strobel, who wrote The Case for Faith and The Case for Christ, is working on a new book called The Case for Grace. I love the title. And I love the subject. Grace is the free gift of God extended to human beings. Grace is the only provision for sinful human beings in order to be saved. And that's why we believe that you're saved by grace through faith. Grace means all the favors and the gifts of God. Now, let me help you. Remember, we learned words, Bible words. When I say the word glory, that word incorporates each and every attribute of God. When we say the word grace, it means all the favors, all the gifts of God. All the favors, all the gifts of God. And so grace isn't based on dessert or ability. And by dessert, I don't mean what you eat after the meal. I mean what you deserve. In other words, grace isn't based on what you deserve, because if you got what you would deserve, you would, like me, get prison, possibly hell. No, who who are we kidding? Prison and hell. And grace isn't based on ability. Now, this is important. The biggest reason why I didn't want to become a Christian for so very, very long was because I knew in my heart of hearts and my soul of souls that I wouldn't have the ability to be a Christian because I'm not a good person. I'm not good at being good. I'm not good at patience and kindness and all of the stuff that the Bible talks about. I always thought of Christianity like bowling. I hate bowling because I roll the ball down the lane and it goes into the gutter. And I'm thinking, I hate this game. Why would you play a game that you can't possibly be good at? Why should I be a Christian When I'm not good at it. Because to me being a Christian meant throwing strikes. It meant a perfect game. Or at least getting. How many frames do they have? Ten. Okay if you get nine out of ten. Well then at least it's a ninety. And ninety in high school. That's that's an A minus anyway. But guess what? Grace isn't based on ability. It isn't based on how good you are or how bad you are or how spiritual you are or how unspiritual you are or how attractive you are or how unattractive you are. I had Mormons come to my doorstep and they wanted me to become a Mormon. And I said, I can't become a Mormon. I'm not attractive. They go, you're okay." But grace doesn't simply help you along the way. And grace doesn't simply make 
a contribution. This is the important thing. Grace is everything. It is absolute. Grace does everything from start to finish. And since no cause stimulates grace, no cause is given. The person who has received Jesus stands accepted in Christ based on the grace that is imparted. And you're not on probation. So when you become a Christian, it isn't like, okay, we'll try you out for a couple of years. And if you're a wicked, stinking sinner, well, you're going to be disqualified. No. Since grace means all the favors and the gifts of God, and since grace isn't based on desert or ability, and since no cause stimulates grace, the person who receives Jesus and stands accepted in Jesus is not on probation. And what I'm about to say is probably the most important thing that you will ever hear me say ever. Grace given. Is never withdrawn. Grace given. Is never withdrawn. When God gives you grace. In the person of Jesus Christ. Remember. The law came by Moses. But grace and truth. Came by the person of Jesus Christ. This is why John writes in 1 John chapter 5 verse 13. And this is the testimony that we received from him. That he who, who has the son has life. In 1 John chapter 5 verse 13. It says this amazing statement. It says. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son of God does not have life. Life is established, committed, given, imparted in the person of Jesus Christ. So what's the secret of grace? The secret of grace is to believe and consent to be loved, particularly because you're unworthy. The secret of grace is to believe and consent to be loved while unworthy. It's to believe in Jesus and everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did and consent to be loved while unworthy. And those who have experienced grace are given the freedom to see themselves in Christ. And those who have experienced grace no longer need to believe in themselves. Do you realize that those who have experienced grace never, ever have to be disappointed in themselves ever again? Because guess what? If you are disappointed in yourself, it's because you believe in yourself. And Jesus invites you to stop believing in yourself and to start believing in him. 
To believe in his love and to believe in his grace and to believe in his truth and to believe in his gifts and to believe that he has given you everything that pertains to life and to godliness and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so to be proud is to be blind because we have no standing before God apart from Jesus Christ. If you think that there's one molecule, let's go lower, one atom, no, let's go lower, one quark, let's go lower, the Higgs boson, if it exists, let's go down to the particulate of whatever creates reality and that's manifested in you. There is not one thing In you that merits acceptance by God. This is what the Bible means when it says in our flesh there dwells no good thing. And so Paul will identify himself as being holy and completely in Christ. Someone wrote. In acceptance lieth peace. Oh, my heart be still. Let thy restless worries cease and accept his will. Though this test be not thy choice, it is his. Therefore rejoice in his plan. There cannot be ought to make thee sad. If this is his choice for thee, take it and be glad. Make from it some lovely thing to the glory of thy king. Cease from sighs and murmuring. Sing his lovely grace. This thing means thy furthering to a wealthy place from thy fears. He'll give release in acceptance. Lieth peace. And so Paul says. Grace. And peace. Peace. With God. Peace from God. The peace of God. This isn't just the secession of hostilities. This doesn't mean you lay your weapons down. It doesn't mean you call a truce. The presence of Jesus is the key to peace. And so when Jesus says peace be unto you. That means more than have a nice day. Or in Spanish. Hace un buen día. It means more than be safe from trouble. It means may God give you every good thing. Isaiah said, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Isaiah 26, 3. Remember peace, the peace of God creates peace with God. You're no longer at war with him. You've experienced forgiveness and hope, love and mercy. This week I heard the story about a man who had to cross a wide river on the ice and he was terrified. 
He crawled on his hands and his knees in fear and horror and panic. He edged his way across the ice an inch at a time, terrified that the ice was going to crack and he was going to fall through to his death. Just as he neared the other side, exhausted and spent and cold, there was a guy ice skating right next to him, carrying a wagon. Filled with Christmas presents. It's just like Christians. Headed for heaven. Trembling at every step. Afraid that the promises of God will crack beneath their feet. Afraid that grace and peace won't hold them up in times of trouble. But the Bible teaches that we can have peace because we have peace with God and can have peace in any situation. If you're interested in the Christian life, then you're going to be interested in this Bible study. Because Paul knows and loves Jesus And you know what he's going to encourage you to do? He's going to encourage you to put everything else aside and to go all out for Jesus. He's going to suggest that real life is in Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians, there's no shades of gray. Because God is your source. Because you're chosen. You're loved by God. And because you're chosen and you're loved by God, you're more loved than you can imagine. And you are forgiven and you are at peace and you are God's child and you are his creative work. And you're a new creation and you're part of a new family and you're a citizen of heaven and you're a child of the light. And you're a part of a royal priesthood and you're reconciled to God and you don't have to worry because God is on your side and God is at work. He's preparing good things for you and he's reminding you that he is an important work for you to do because he's made you a part of his family and he's inviting you into the family business it's interesting to me my father never invited me into the family business because he knew That the business that he was in would eventually become empty and dark. That it was a business where you had to look over your shoulder and you had to wonder all the time who was for you and who was against you. But in the business that we're in, it's the business of grace. It's the business of peace. It's the business of truth. It's the business of forgiveness. We're in heaven's business. Next week, 
verses 3 through 7. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful for your love, for your mercy, for grace, for peace, for salvation. Lord, we know that for many people, life goes from one empty place to the next empty place, from one dark place to the next dark place, from one insecure place to the next insecure place. But Lord, we pray that we would place our feet on the rock. And that, Lord, we would understand that we have everything that we need in the person of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.